Hi, and welcome to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Australian economics. Today, for episode 332, I'm speaking with Vijay Boyapati. He is a well-known author in the space, and so his book, The Bullish Case for Bitcoin, recently came out, of course, based on his article, The Bullish Case for Bitcoin. So today, we talk about that, various aspects of the understanding in this broader Bitcoin space about Bitcoin, and various ideas like the progression steps of money, and we also talk about some of his more bearish ideas on Bitcoin. So I think this will be an interesting one for listeners, and I hope you enjoy it. This show is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the easy way to accumulate Bitcoin while also receiving a world-class education and world-class support. Now, Swan are bringing back gifts, so you can gift Bitcoin to your loved ones. Now, this can come with a custom message. Your recipient will get an email, and they can claim that by creating their own Swan account. And then at that point, they will convert the USD value you sent to them into Bitcoin. So let the team at Swan help Orange Pill your friends. You can give the gift of Bitcoin to your loved ones, and they will also receive education along the way. So go to swanbitcoin.com gift. Now, if you've been listening for some time but haven't thought to upgrade your security or take that step of self-custody, my favorite hardware wallet is the cold card. Now, you can use the cold card in a single signature setup on its own or as part of a multi-signature setup, and it has all sorts of different features, like you can use passphrases with it, you can have a duress pin, you can have a brick me pin that bricks the device, you can use seed XOR, and you can also use the address explorer. So that's a really interesting feature where you can check that you actually hold the address that you are trying to receive to. So this can improve our security and give us more confidence that yes, I really do control this Bitcoin address or the keys associated for that address. Now go and purchase yours. It's The website is coinkite.com and use the code Levera to get a discount on your cold card or on your metal backup products. They've got the C plate. Now, if you're looking to upgrade to multi-signature, Unchained Capital can help with what's called collaborative custody. Now, with securing your coins, you want to make sure you are not leaving single points of failure. That means don't leave your coins on the exchange and potentially think about whether you're just using one hardware wallet and you haven't considered the backup and testing that. With Unchained and multi-signature, you can give yourself more peace of mind by creating a setup where you can still make a mistake and not lose your coins. So if you're interested, go to unchained.com. They've got a concierge onboarding program that can help you get started easily with multi-signature where they will ship you two hardware wallets. They'll do a call with you and deposit $1,000 of Bitcoin in your vault and get you going on that journey of multi-signature self-sovereignty. So so go to unchained.com and use the code Levera when signing up for the concierge onboarding program. And now, on to the show with VJ. VJ, it's a pleasure to chat with you again. It's great to see you again, Stefan. And I, uh, since I haven't spoken to you in a long time, I have to say congratulations. I'm very, very happy for you. Congratulations on, on getting married. It's very exciting news. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, it's it, yeah, it's just something uh, I've been, uh, you know, keeping on the down low a little bit. But, uh, yeah, we, uh, we'll see how things go and... Especially getting out of the Australian gulag has been uh, very... <laughs> Liber- liberating. <laughs> it must feel liberating. Yeah. Getting out of Australia was just insane. And, and now it's just kind of living uh, sort of a more nomadic-ish life. So uh, I think that's definitely something as well for the, the Bitcoin people out there. More, more and more people are starting to think about that. And 
even remote working and things. Yeah, I'd um, love enough about me. Let's yeah. yeah go so on. I was just gonna say. I mean, I think that would be so interesting. Just an episode on on hearing your experience with the nomadic lifestyle, and I mean, Bitcoin enables people to live that nomadic lifestyle, and you you you're living it. It's not just theory, and I I think it's so cool that you um sort of up and left Australia and, and, and found a new life. So I, I think it would make for a great episode. I, I would definitely listen to it. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, I, I did one recently with Rigel, uh, Coinshaw NZ, but um, I'll do one where I kind of talk more about my own actual experience. And I've spoken at some of the conferences a little bit about it as well, but uh, probably not, not as many podcast episodes on it. as uh, So that's definitely coming. But let's talk about you. You've, you've got this little book coming out. Uh, you, what, tell, what's, what's this book out, hey? <laughs> so you've heard, the, you, you've heard the title. It's The Bullish Case for Bitcoin. Uh, a bit of a coincidence. You know this because we've talked about this many times over the last few years. But I wrote an article in 2017 and published it in 2018. And it, it got way more readership than I ever expected. Um, it was read over a million times, translated into 20 languages by volunteers. I didn't pay for any of that. People just came to me and said, you know, this really helped me. So I want to translate it into Chinese or Korean or Italian or Tamil, uh, just a whole bunch of different languages. And at the time, a lot of people asked me to turn it into a book uh, because there were some people like our you know mutual friend, uh, Bill in Canberra, a Bitcoiner, um, who's famous for saying, hodl on comrades, uh, don't trade. Uh, He would print my article out on paper and give it out as kind of a cheap version of a book. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, I didn't, at the time, I didn't think there was much I wanted to add to the article. I thought, well, this is kind of what I wanted to say about Bitcoin. It's a, it, it provides an economic framework for understanding why does this thing have any value and, and why is the value going up, which I think are two of the most important economic questions of the last century, really. This is, no one thought something like this was possible. So how is it possible? Um, so anyway, I provided what I thought were decent answers. But then um, in 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 the years that followed, um, the market really matured a lot and, and changed quite a bit. The circumstances around Bitcoin changed a lot. And then in 2020 with the pandemic, the response from central banks was so crazy, so unprecedented. The monetary situation that we were living in with the printing of trillions of dollars, I thought provided a new context in which to revisit my article um, and to turn it into a book. And and then I, I also realized over those years that there are a couple of important topics that I didn't cover in the article that I really should cover in a longer book. So, you know, I, I began writing uh, the book version, expanding on the article, updating the article and adding a bunch of new content. And I remember speaking to a bunch of other Bitcoin authors like Seyfedean, um, Nick Bartia, Jan Pritzker, a bunch of these guys, and I, and uh, Jimmy Song as well. And I asked all of them, should I, you know, go find a publisher? Should I try and do this myself? Every single one of them said, publish it yourself, self-publish, because you control the rights, you have so much more flexibility. If you want to do translations, you can do translations. If you want to do giveaways, you can do that. You can do whatever you want because you own the rights. Don't use a publisher. 
Uh, and so I took their advice, um, and Safe was the one who emphasized this the most. It was really helpful. So I launched my book on Kickstarter uh, um, in June of this year. Oh, yeah, June June this year. And, and, and it did really well. It sold, uh, just on Kickstarter, it sold about $150,000 worth. Uh, and really, that blew me away. I was, you know, excited if I sold ten thousand dollars worth of books. Um, so it was a, is it was a pretty big success, and I think the book is doing really well since it's launched more widely. It's on Amazon, and you can buy it at your retailers like Barnes and Noble. Um, so people who have read the article will be familiar with chunks of the book, uh, but it does cover things like the historical origins of Bitcoin. I never talked about that in the article. And it also talks about the topic of what is Bitcoin and kind of gets into the block size war a little bit and why Bitcoin is the way it is and why it's not a payment system, which is a debate that I I took part in a lot in 2017. I was debating people like Eric Voorhees and Mike Belshi and uh, uh, Wences Kesaris. These were all on private mailing lists. They weren't public debates, but I was debating these guys about why I thought Bitcoin had to be the way it is now um but it wasn't it wasn't obvious then and i thought that was a topic that needed to be revisited um so yeah that's that's a little bit of history about the book and and how it came to be and you know what's in it and how it's different to the article yeah that's fantastic and i'm uh, i definitely am keen to look i'm looking forward to getting my signed copy when i finally meet you in person so for listeners i've been chatting with vj for years but i've never actually met him in person <laughs> so one of the few people in the bitcoin space who i've not uh had the pleasure of meeting yet uh but we'll make it happen probably bitcoin 2022 so shout out for bitcoin 2022 conference i think it's b.tc slash conference for people who are interested That'll be in Miami in April. So I'm really looking forward to that one. Um, and yeah, so I think the book is really going to help people because it's weird because it's one thing to tell people, hey, read this article, but it's like a book sort of has more, I guess, credence around it or just kind of credibility. And so they're going to think of you more as like, oh, hey, you're a, you're an author, right? Like, you know, now that you've written this book and it's out there with your name on it and, you know, nice graphics and things. Uh, and That's I all. Think it's it's, it's very that, interesting yeah. that, that, that certain symbols can uh, confer credibility or gravitas like that. You're exactly right. And it doesn't make me a different person. It doesn't make me more accomplished or smarter or anything like that. It's kind of like a PhD in a way. Like, you know, people get PhDs and then for some reason other people think, oh, that, that they must be really smart. It's just really kind of social credibility that comes from it. But that that has value in it se- itself because when you recognize that, you recognize there may be people who are skeptical about Bitcoin and maybe they wouldn't give too much credence to an article, but seeing it in, in a physical form and holding it and, and seeing, you know, things like the dedications on the back from people like Jack Dorsey and um, a foreword from Michael Saylor, those things can add credibility. So it helps to get people maybe over the hump to even consider reading something like this. Of course, yeah, because those of us in Bitcoin world obviously see see it as an excellent, excellent thing, but people who are still in fiat world aren't maybe they're not they're not quite connected to it yet and so they they need some of these credibility markers right and that's i think it's the same thing when you look at um let's say the typical corporate media who they ask on the show it typically needs to be someone with a with a title right it needs to be someone who's like a oh this guy's director of this company or he's a ceo of that or and they they don't really understand that concept more of just like oh you're just this guy's just an expert in this area or he's just 
he's written a very influential thing in this area, they don't they don't sort of grok that idea very well. So they need to say, oh, it's an author. It's Vijay Boyapati, the author of this, you know. Uh, that's kind of an interesting thing. And uh, who knows, maybe Bitcoin is going to bring back a more, let's say, just meritocratic sort of... Uh, society but i can understand maybe it's like a it's like people use little heuristic shortcut oh, okay this guy's a ceo or he's a founder of this company must be must be legit i know? think but that's that's what goes in their mind i know this is a little bit of a tangent but i think that's a very very important point that most people don't think about and i'm, I'm reading a book actually right now which goes into this in great depth it's called public opinion uh by by walter lipman and it talks about how we we can't know everything about reality because reality is so complex and nuanced and so we create these simplified mental models and we have these tools for understanding the world and one of the tools we have is just authority how do we know something is true we rely on a set of authority figures and and we all do this to a greater or lesser extent where we over time learn to trust certain people because they've said things that made sense to us or they've said things that we think are obviously correct uh and and we lean on them um this is just a sort of uh epistemological point which i think is really interesting that you brought up uh and because i'm reading it i I thought it would be just kind of cool cool i mean mean, you're right and that's the thing even even in let's say court cases they might have competing experts and they are these are like maybe phd level or phd there you go there's that heuristic again but (laughs) these are again expert levels but they are they're 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 talking about the same set of facts but with very differing interpretations and so that might be the same kind of thing in our world of let's say a keynesian or a monetarist economist as opposed to an austrian economist and they are looking at the same set of facts but they have extremely different views about what caused what and what's the solution what's the problem what's the solution and so it's just such a different i guess that's that's the importance of having actual free speech and ability to talk about it and actually debate these ideas out there because otherwise they'll say, no, listen to, and I mean, just like with all the hysteria stuff, right? It's going to be, listen to the experts. Don't worry. Inflation is good, right? That's, that's what, that's what they're going to start saying, right? Yeah. They're going to say inflation, you know, it's, it's actually not that bad because the cost of your debt is getting wiped away, pleb. Just don't worry about the fiat inflation. Yeah. And the fact that the, the, the great masses have to rely on these tools creates the opportunity for people who want to manipulate them. Uh, and one thing I think I've learned very clearly over the last decade is the media's real job is not to inform the public, it's to shape public opinion. At least that's what they're trying to do. They want the public to believe a certain set of things, and they need to guide the uninformed public to those opinions. Uh, and it's actually been uh, you know, a great disservice to the media in general that the internet exists, because people can look for alternative points of view and Search for the truth if they, they're so inclined. Uh, and this has really broken the stranglehold the media has had for the last century um, in, in shaping public opinion and getting the public to do what the people, the elites, the people in power want them to do. Yeah, I love that point you're making because it's really some of the people in the media, in at least the corporate media, they see their role, it's more like narrative crafting than it is actually about objectively trying to report things and so it's just become this weird game of credentialism as you as you were saying like people oh look he's a phd he's a ceo he's a you know or he's he's with the world bank or the imf or the bis or the the fed or the ecb these big organizations that are supposed to have all this power over us and and yet 
there are these freedom-fighting individuals, Bitcoiners, cypherpunks, libertarians, whatever you want to call them. They're out there trying to speak the truth about what's going on in terms of fiat, in terms of inflation, in terms of what makes a good money. And it's kind of strange to see how, especially now in, you know, as we speak now, December 2021, we're seeing so much censorship, suppression of alternative viewpoints. And I wonder, would that same thing happen in a Bitcoin versus fiat context? Will they start censoring Bitcoin voices and saying, no, this is not, no, listen to the experts. This is, this is misinformation. We're going to, we're going to tag your tweets and tag your blog posts and your Facebook posts and whatever. This is misinformation because the real inflation rate is only 6%, not 30%, you plebs. <laughs> I, I mean, I think so. I think the real battle is to come with Bitcoin. Uh, when the, when the state truly awakens to the existential threat that Bitcoin poses, to its most important sovereign power, which is control over monetary policy. Uh, you could probably say control over the military is up there as well, but those are the two really big ones. Uh, so, yeah, that kind of censorship is, I, I think, something that we should expect in the future. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so I think we've seen a real shift in the space. I think a lot more people start to understand this idea now that um, Bitcoin is not directly going to be the money for a lot of people that they they are going to use the lightning network and other people you know let's say the the michael saylor style is if you can access cheap credit do it right that that and it's like this idea and if you can access cheap credit i can understand from his point of view and even like from a just a just a financial or just an accounting sense yeah you're just you're tying up less of your own assets you're just using the fiat system, and it's just like Pierre's speculative attack thesis as well. So I, but at the same time, you're seeing that's one side, and then another side is kind of the people who are like, no, zero fiat, just like get on zero, don't even touch fiat, and just like fully engage in the circular economy. I'm curious, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I've I've never um, been that tied to the payment use case of Bitcoin. I've always thought, and this is something that you know talking about the article and it'd be interesting to talk about some of the influences of the article. I've always thought of the roles of money. The most important role of money is the store of value use case. I think it's so much more important where people save their money than how or the medium that they spend their money in because the pool of savings is the original fount of power. That's where power comes from. And that's why governments always want the money, um, the means of savings to be controlled by them. You could think of a situation like Argentina, for instance, where you have a detachment where people, if possible, will try and save in the dollar and people will spend in the peso. That really undermines the power of the Argentinian government because the main mechanism with which governments choose to appropriate savings through a population to sort of parasitically suck away um, savings out of this large pool of savings that exists in a, in a, in an economy is through inflation. And so if the means of savings is not something that they can inflate away, they lose that power. So I've always thought the store of value function of money is critically important um, by, by far the most important um, and then afterwards, the, the medium of exchange has, you know, some function. We do need a medium of exchange to so, sort of satisfy the double coincidence of wants problem. But, I, and this is interesting because I feel like the Austrian school actually really emphasizes the medium of exchange 
role of money and, and the double coincidence of wants problem and how that's really important. I've sort of, in my retrospective of thinking about money very deeply for the last 10 years, uh, have come to a different conclusion. And I feel like it's actually just as a sort of point of interest, I think it's a big lacuna in, in the Austrian school of um, uh, thought on money. Uh, I think the Austrian account of the origins of money is missing a critical piece. Um, and I'll just give you a brief summary of why I think that. The Austrian story of the origins of money is that you st- society starts off in a state of barter, where people have very inefficient transactions with each other, like an apple grower is trying to trade with a fisherman, uh, and they don't necessarily want to trade at the same time, so that, that you have trade that doesn't happen because of that. Uh, and, and, and obviously, because you don't have prices, it's really hard to know what the exchange ratios are and all that. So what happens is people who want to do trade want to keep something that's more marketable. So they look for a commodity such as seashells or maybe gold or something else which is more marketable and which they can do their trade with. And so they keep some of their savings in that. The big problem, and that, that's fine, right? Eventually, the thing becomes more and more marketable, and then you say it's money. That's basically, it's pretty simple. That's basically the Austrian story for money. But if the good that is becoming monetized and is becoming more marketable is largely inelastic in supply, what you have to expect is as as adoption grows, the purchasing power of that monetary good must go up. It has to go up. As the number of people in you know a village who own gold goes from one person to a hundred people to a thousand people, the purchasing power of gold in that village is going to go through the roof. And one 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 thing that every Austrian should know is that whenever you see, have a market signal of something going up in purchasing power, there are going to be speculators who recognize that, you know, we're not stupid as humans. We see when something is going up in value and we get attracted to that and and we want to trade on that. And the thing I think is interesting is Austrians really don't reflect on that part of the monetization of a monetary good. They just talk about the medium of exchange role and the marketability they don't talk about the speculation that would happen in money and why it would have to happen in money. And anything that's going up in value, merchants and you know people who are using money are going to say, oh, well, I want more of it. And that speculation actually hastens the process of monetization. That's what I think is the big hole in the, the Austrian story of the origins of money. Interesting. So, I mean, it's not... Like, aren't we, what about, like, just the Misesian idea of just speculation, like, as in ideas that you are entering into a certain act, that there's a speculation involved with all of those acts? Yeah, I mean, sort of by definition, every exchange that we do is a speculation. What I'm talking about more is the kind of speculation where you're looking at the price of something like you'd look at the stock market and you're trying to anticipate where that price is going. And if you think it's going to go up, you invest you invest in it now because you expect to get a future gain uh, over time. And my point is that when something is being monetized, even if it's just because people are saying, I need a better uh, medium of exchange for marketability purposes, someone else is going to recognize the purchasing power of that thing is going up. And they're going to say, I want more of that. And I'm sure throughout history, there were periods of time where gold was starting to become money in some society. And someone said, whoa, this is becoming way more valuable. I want to hoard gold right now. I want to hold a lot of gold because in a year from now, I'll be able to purchase 10 cows instead of three cows because gold is becoming money in that society. And by doing that, by speculating in gold in that way and increasing its purchasing power, they're hastening its adoption as money because the pool of savings 
in that economy going into gold is increasing and eventually it stabilizes and everyone has some savings in gold but they're pushing gold towards that end and that's what bitcoiners are doing as well they're recognizing that there's a likelihood in the future that bitcoin will be money and because it supplies in elastic it's a really good bet to own some now because if it does become money it's going to be worth a lot more in the future but the very act of going and buying and holding bitcoin with that belief hastens that future happening it's it's a difficult thing to sort of reason about because it's kind of a feedback loop I see, yeah. And so I think there is actually an interesting section from Menges uh, on the origins of money, and I'm sure you probably recall this as well. There's a section where he says something like, uh, some people will realize it for others, right? And that, that's perhaps what you're actually referring to in, in that way, that he's saying that some people will recognize this before other people will. And of course, any Bitcoiner, especially the early Bitcoiners, did recognize this before other... Of course, now, the caveat here is, did you hold, right? There are a lot of people who kind of had some coin in early years and then kind of frivolously spent it away or lost it or whatever. The question is, did you recognize it early and then did you hold? <laughs> that's the... Uh, Yeah, that's the part I feel like the Austrians really skimmed over. This transition from something, you know, being a collectible to being so marketable that it's a medium of exchange. That's a very interesting part of the monetization. And there's a lot of things that you can study in that. Like, what is the shape of that monetization? Is it linear? Does it go up in a straight line? Or is it exponential? Or are there cycles? Now, you know, now we seem to have learned that there are cycles. Uh, So I... I think that's just a big gap where Austrians just kind of brushed over it and said, or didn't even say, didn't even realize they were brushing over it. And I think it's so much more obvious now that we have Bitcoin and we, we're we witnessing in real time the monetization of Bitcoin that you can't skim over it. This is happening right now. Bitcoin is clearly not a widely used medium of exchange, but it does have some monetary function, right? We all recognize it's doing something that is... Uh, a function of money. It's providing the ability to keep your savings into the future. It's doing that very well, um, but it's not yet a medium of exchange. So the period we're in, I think, is fascinating because it's exposing a whole new area of monetary economics that most people hadn't really thought about very much ten years ago. Yeah, I think, and I think the maybe uh, I guess to steal man, right? Like if you were talking to say Bob Murphy or Joe Salerno or someone, they might maybe they would come back to you and say, well. Actually, the Mengurian and Misesian stories around how money forms and the most saleable good and so on, maybe that's like, it's not necessarily that it actually physically happened in that historical order. It's more just like kind of mentally, here's the process, like here's the theoretical steps that are required. And this is how we can sort of a priori see uh, this is how money would form. But I think to your point, it's it's true that we definitely could see more explanation around how adoption happens. And it could well be that because at the time Menger was writing and Mises was writing and Rothbard were writing, you know, gold had already yeah. monetized, right? Thousands That's a of great years point. ago. So they missed out on the chance to that, see that. Yep. Whereas, and, and, I, and I think you've made this point as well, is that we've never seen a good monetized before. That Bitcoin is in living memory and maybe, even, you know, going back even thousands of years, no one had witnessed this before 
And even thousands of years ago, they couldn't use the internet to communicate directly all around the world in an in, in an instant. So maybe those are some reasons why this time yeah, is Yeah, because with gold, the monetization of gold, we didn't witness it. It was a historical event and, and a lot of the data is missing. So we, we don't know. And, and the theory of the origins of money is somewhat speculative because of that. I mean, it's an a priori theory as well. Does that a priori theory actually apply to history? I'm fairly confident it does to a large extent, but then we're missing lots of details like the, the, the store of value transition that, you know, that could have taken thousands of years and we just don't know how that played out with gold. But now we, we're witnessing it. So it's, it's super exciting as someone who's a student of economics to be able to witness something like this, which is, you know, once in a millennium type event. Uh, so it's cool. I think, you know, we can benefit from it just from a, uh, an academic point of view. Yeah, certainly. And I think even the point you raised around four-year cycles, I mean, it seems to, like, the thing is, at least, now my recollection may be different from yours, but at least for me, in sort of 2014 and 15, around those time in the bear cycle, it wasn't clear that Bitcoin was going to come back, right? Like, to the broader world. It was kind of like, this thing could be dead and it's over. I mean, I was still hodling, but I was still a bit like, oh, who knows, right? Because back then it was different. You just weren't sure it was coming back. And then I think in 2018 and 19, you were sort of a bit more, oh, okay, it's, it's, look, it, we're just going to wait it out for a little bit and it'll be back. And sure, lo and behold, yeah, it did. It did come back. But then the question is, are we actually still going to have four-year cycles? Or is it actually just like four-year cycles are gone now? And actually, it's just kind of like, there will be maybe some momentum up and down, but maybe it's not four-year cycles. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. This is, again, an open question we have to observe and we have to see. It could be that the market has reached such scale and matured so much now that we have all this financialization on top of Bitcoin that could provide enough stability that we're gonna, we're not going to see these big swings up and down um, because we have futures markets and we have derivatives and people can make bets on the future price of Bitcoin very easily now. Um, so so that that tends to have the effect of kind of dampening, I think, dampening these cycles. But we don't know. We we, we have to kind of observe and see and and learn. Right, because. And that's the other thing. I mean, we could wake up tomorrow and it's hyper Bitcoinized, right? Like we could just, you know, you, it, it could happen really quick. Maybe not, maybe not in like overnight, but it, it could just sort of in the space of a few months, like just shoot from whatever 50K price to, you know, millions of dollars effectively per coin. And so for all we know, like that's kind of the, we don't really know how this is going to happen, but I mean, it seems like it will just happen with adoption over time and crucially as you point out it's people adopting it as their savings right like mentally do i save into bitcoin and so i think that's an interesting point as well probably a point to get your thoughts on el salvador as well because obviously el salvador have recently put in the bitcoin law bitcoin is now legal tender you do not pay capital gains tax to spend bitcoin in el salvador if you're like yeah and so what's your thought on that and is that really the right kind of adoption or would you i guess if I were to kind of try and think what your view is, it's really more about how many new holders are being created in El Salvador, not how many people are, say, transacting. Yeah, the number of people who want to keep their savings in in Bitcoin in El Salvador is the thing that I would be most interested in. Like if they distributed a bunch of Bitcoin to their population, if those people just immediately sell it and spend it on something, then it's... It, it it doesn't really have much significance. Now, the thing with El Salvador that's interesting is they've re- re- removed one of the major frictions for Bitcoin 
the transactional use of Bitcoin, which is the taxation on capital gains. In most Western countries like the US and Australia, uh, you you know you have bit you buy Bitcoin at say a hundred dollars, and then you go and try and buy something with it when it's two hundred dollars. You have to pay tax uh, on the gain when you spend that. You could you know be buying. I don't know, buying lunch or something like that, but you have the extra annoyance of having to record the transaction and and pay tax on the, the excess value of your Bitcoin over that period of time, which is a huge, huge friction. No one wants to go and buy coffee and then think, oh, I have to file taxes because of that. Uh, so they removed that. But I don't think actually that was the primary friction that prevented transactional use. I think the primary friction is the opportunity cost of relinquishing something that is going going up in in value a lot, and we all know the story of Laszlo Hanyaks, who you know spent ten thousand Bitcoin for two pizzas, and and the regret any one of us would feel getting rid of ten thousand Bitcoins for two pizzas, and so I think over the years people sort of realize, wait a second, why am I spending this? I mean, if I have dollars around, why wouldn't I spend the dollars first? Uh, it's kind of like Gresham's law. You get rid of the crappy money first and you keep the good money. Um, so I think people have realized that Bitcoin is to be used for savings primarily. And this gets back to, you know, one of, I, I think, one of the big influences that my article ha- had and I think I'm most proud about is really dispelling this idea that money has to be first and foremost a medium of exchange. I mean, it's, it may be hard for people who are coming into Bitcoin to sort of realize how big this narrative was, but from 2000, I don't know, almost from the beginning to, to to the block size war and the end of the block size war in 2017, there's a very powerful narrative that unless Bitcoin is a payment system or a medium of exchange, it's failed. And there was a, you know, a whole schism in the, the Bitcoin community uh, with the split of the network and the creation of Bcash in, in August 2017. And I argued for a long time, very passionately, that that was a, a failed vision, and it couldn't—it simply couldn't work. And I, for the reason that money needs to be a store of value first. And there was an article in Bloomberg a couple of years ago which talked about this and said, despite all of the efforts, all the marketing efforts of uh, you know some of Bitcoin's greatest stars like Roger Ver, Bitcoin Cash doesn't have much merchant adoption at all. And that made complete sense to me. Why would a merchant want to adopt something like Bitcoin Cash when the pool of savings is not in Bitcoin Cash? The merchant wants to accept the savings of the population as income, and maybe one in 10,000 of their customers has any Bitcoin Cash. So why would they go to the you know extra uh, mental burden to have a, a payment system and figure out even what Bitcoin Cash is? Just be, to take one in 10,000 customers, it makes no sense at all. So so that that was one of the things I was most proud about with the articles, shifting that narrative and also explaining the economics of the evolution of money. Um, most people, I think, uh, in, in the space at least, didn't really have a good conception of the evolution of money. They, they didn't have a good, like, money can f- serve multiple purposes, and how are these purposes linked to each other? Maybe they thought a little bit about unit of account. Most people didn't talk very much about store of value at all in, in 2017 and earlier. And if they did, they didn't understand how they were connected. They didn't understand that, you know, money starts off as a collectible. It's just something that people value for its own intrinsic, like, 
curiosity that you know because gold is shiny people might have picked it up and said oh this is cool i want to hold it because of that and then it slowly becomes a store of value and eventually once it's plateaued in its purchasing power it becomes suitable as a medium of exchange because the the opportunity cost of relinquishing it drops because most people have some savings in it and eventually it becomes a unit of account that evolution uh, of money that aspect of of my article in my book i think a lot of people didn't understand that but i think now it, it's much more widely understood and i think most people now when they talk about bitcoin the narrative is the, the dominant narrative is much more about bitcoin being a store of value oh, i get it it's a store of value or it's becoming a store of value they don't say well bitcoin i can't buy my coffee with bitcoin like that that argument has largely uh, disappeared. Um, and there was one other thing, and we talked about this a little bit. What the other influence I think my article had was the monetary premium idea. The idea that all monies have this thing, which is a monetary premium, which is an excess price over what could be justified by its use demand alone. And that's what really distinguishes money from other goods, which have utility, uh, like oil or wheat, where most of their price, almost all of their price can be explained by their utility. Money is very special, and and the reason it has this premium is because people value it for the functions of money that it provides society that we really need, right? We really need the function of a store of value. We really need the function of a medium of exchange. We really need the function of a unit of account. And, and, And I think that the importance of that insight is that money doesn't get its value from its utility, uh, you know, its um, use cases. It gets its value from its monetary premium, which is really contra what someone like Peter Schiff thinks. He's very confused on this, where he'll say gold is valuable because you can use it, uh, and Bitcoin has Bitcoin can't store value because there's nothing to store. You can't do anything with it. He's really misunderstood why money has value and he misunderstands the idea of the monetary premium he thinks the monetary premium comes from the fact that people use gold in their teeth or whatever uh but the the the, the truth is that most gold doesn't do anything it sits as bars sitting still in vaults in banks around the world and that is a reflection of gold's monetary premium so those are a couple of the ideas uh you know getting back to my article in my book that I think were really misunderstood when it first came out and, and I feel you know most proud of uh, to sort of correct and get people into what I think is a much uh, a, a narrative which is much closer to reality. Back to the show in a moment. Have you thought about getting involved with Bitcoin mining? CompassMining.io are making it easy to do this. You can go to the website, select an ASIC mining machine, either a new one or a secondhand one, and it will show you the estimated online date for that machine, and you can have that online at a facility where you can get a competitive power rate as opposed to the residential rates that many of us are getting. Now, you don't need advanced technical knowledge to get started. You can start easily on Compass Mining. They can guide you along the way where you select for mining pool to have your hash rate pointed towards, and then you will receive SATs. So go and sign up at compassmining.io. And in Bitcoin mining, there's also Brains, brains brains.com. That's brains with two eyes. They are a Bitcoin company through and through. They were the first to support Taproot. 
They are really principled and always looking at ways to improve the Bitcoin protocol. And they are currently working and trying to drive adoption on Stratum V2, which is the next generation pooled mining protocol. Also, they've got Brains OS Plus. This is firmware for your ASIC mining machine with auto-tuning features. So this can get you more bang for your buck as well. They also operate Slushpool, the first Bitcoin mining pool. They've mined over 1.25 million Bitcoins. Now with Brains, they are also offering all sorts of educational content and dashboards such as their Insights dashboard showing profitability calculators and blog posts on their website. So I highly recommend you go and check them out. It's brains.com. That's brains with two eyes. And finally, Lend at HODL HODL. This is Bitcoin DeFi. This is a peer-to-peer Bitcoin-backed lending platform. You can lend or borrow stablecoins globally and anonymously using Bitcoin as collateral. So if you need a small amount of fiat short-term liquidity, you can put up some Bitcoin as collateral and borrow stablecoins against that. And you still hold one of three keys in the escrow throughout that whole deal. On the other hand, if you have stablecoins, you can earn some extra interest. You can lend that out and you are the one who defines the terms and the APR for those deals. So if you want to sign up, go to lend.hodlhodl.com. That's L-E-N-D dot H-O-D-L H-O-D-L dot com. Back to the show. The monetary premium point is an interesting and important one because there are other people who are maybe not as well-read or perhaps they disagree, but their view is something like, oh, we need things to be productive, right? It needs to be a productive asset, right? And they're not understanding that, say, Mises spoke about money as a sui generis good. It's unique. It's not a consumer good nor a capital good. It's sui generis. It's its own special category. Now, there are different arguments even on here on this point. I think someone like uh, Walter Block might have tried to make an argument that money itself is like a capital good and others. But um, I think the broader point, though, is it doesn't have to be productive. What money does is it solves your future uncertainty, right? I might break my arm tomorrow and I need to go to the hospital and pay or well, I need money to pay for that. So I would actually go slight, slightly further answer. than you went, Stefan. I, I would say it's bad for money to be productive. It, it actually harms the functions of money. A money that has a lot of utility is actually going to be less useful as money because its purchasing power is going to move around for its non-monetary uses. So wheat is actually pretty bad money. Cows are a bad money because the demand for them is going to shift for non-monetary reasons, which you do not want money to do. Uh, so the more useful something is, the worse it is for money. Interesting. And so then that might actually be, in some sense, an argument against trying to bring in other additional, more expressive smart contracts into Bitcoin. Or it might be an argument against, let's say, uh, uh, the argument of, let's say, timestamping or decentralized ID uh, to anchor into the Bitcoin blockchain. Although in practice, those uses will get priced out than just simply being able to hold Bitcoin. But theoretically, that if we take that to its conclusion, that means we don't want, quote unquote, smart contracts in Bitcoin, even though, to be clear, Bitcoin does have smart contracts. It has time locking and multi-signature, but the, the shitcoiner version of that. Yeah, I, I've sort of made this argument with Ethereum as well. It's not so much that I've said smart contracts are completely useless or that they're bad. It's more that I've said that the 
the price level, a lot of people are confused with Ethereum. They think the price level is related to the usefulness of these contracts and the fact that Ethereum sort of flies around in these contracts. That makes Ethereum's price go up. Ethereum's price is directly related to its reservation demand, which is people's desire to just hold Ethereum in reserve. The contracts don't do anything. And the same, the same thing is true with Bitcoin, the price level is related to how much people want to keep Bitcoin as their cash balance, which is reservation demand. Uh, so I, I think the, the contracts, uh, it's fine to have them there, but it's its incorrect to focus on them as the causal reason for the price level that Bitcoin or Ethereum have. Yeah, good way. That's a great explanation there. Um, and so I guess let's turn it now... You said you've got a, a second part coming. You got a you, you got a bearish case for Bitcoin. So uh, tell us about this. Yeah, well, you know, I think over the years, what we Bitcoiners really would have loved to see is uh, critics. We we don't ask that there aren't critics of Bitcoin. We just want a better caliber of critic. We want someone. We we want someone who really understands Bitcoin deeply and understands the economics of Bitcoin and the pros and the cons. And it's not that I have um, something new coming out. This is actually covered in my book. I have a whole section on real risks. And and I thought it would be interesting because as Bitcoiners, I think we are in the best position to critique Bitcoin and to think about, well, what are its weaknesses? What are the risks? What are the economic risks of holding Bitcoin? Uh, And I think what we could do is we could do like a mini bearish case for bitcoin and that's not to say that i'm a bitcoin bear i'm i'm hugely bullish if you if you kind of looked at what my ownership position is i'm a bull i'm not i'm not a bear but i think it it is helpful for us to play out um that experiment be honest about the risks and and you know when people come to bitcoin one of the first questions are what are the risks and i think they are much more appreciative when you're honest about them uh so you know, I think it would be good to just chat about a couple of them with you, and I'd love to hear your opinion on these. These are ones that are in my in my book uh, that I've talked about. Sure. Um, yeah. So I think custodial is probably a big one, right? Yeah. I think a lot of custodial use is probably the main. It's probably a high level one. Um, how do you perceive the custodial risk? Yeah, so custodial risk has sort of come about because you now have these big institutions coming into Bitcoin, and a lot of them don't feel confident enough to confident enough yet to to manage their own keys. And so what they're doing is they're they're sort of pushing the risk off onto someone else, and, and some of them are regulated as well, and and reg. They're doing this for regulated regulatory reasons, where regulators are saying you need to keep your bitcoins with uh, a regulated custodian, uh, and so there are custodians out there who have gone and sought, uh, you know, license from the government. That doesn't necessarily mean they're any better, right? It, it just means that they're they're following the government's uh, rules and regulations, and that makes them. Uh, it allows them to get more business because of that. And Coinbase is an example of a regulated custodian that a lot of big institutions have put their Bitcoins at. And Coinbase actually holds a very, very large fraction, I think a disturbingly large fraction of the total supply of Bitcoin. The risk here with custodians is if you have a major uh, attack or compromise of one of these custodians where their their keys are compromised and it could be it could even be an internal attack right you could have a coinbase employee who goes rogue uh, and figures out their internal systems 
and, and breaks it and steals, I don't know, $100 million or a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin, and, and, and poof, just like that, the institutional confidence in storing Bitcoins is completely decimated. Um, you could you could see something like that cause a massive, massive drop in the price of Bitcoin because you could have the big money, uh, which really affects the price level a lot. If they all panic because they think uh, we don't have confidence anymore in our ability to safely store Bitcoin because it's a new asset where the storage problem is completely unique. It's, it's not like storing gold where, you know, that's a problem that's been understood for many thousands of years. You put a lot of heavily armed people around the gold and it's in one location and it can only be attacked by people going to that location. With Bitcoin, it can be attacked from people anywhere on earth, right? Um, the Mt. Gox heist, heist happened by a Russian hacker attacking a Japanese exchange. So Bitcoin exchanges are vulnerable no matter where they are and they face attackers from people all around the world. So I think if there was a major custodian that faced a significant attack and a significant loss of funds, that would cause a massive loss in confidence in Bitcoin as a currency because people will say, well, how do you even own this thing safely? And I think a drop in price, a significant drop in price uh, has a long-term effect because monetary goods, this is another thing I talk about in my book, is they're path dependent. People's confidence in them is is really largely based on looking at past prices. And as the price is going up, people become more confident. And when you have a crash, people's view of the, the, the money is that, oh, that was all irrational, this doesn't make sense, maybe this thing is completely dead. Uh, so people's confidence in a money can be associated with past past price movements and if you had a massive crash because of uh, you know a failure at a custodian it could be many years before confidence was recovered and i think about you know we we talked a little bit about 2014 uh, uh perhaps that was before the show started but there was a long winter you know to end of 2013 all the way to maybe the end of 2016 where it, it seemed like bitcoin could be dead and people's sort of confidence in Bitcoin had really been shattered by that crash. So I would say that those two things in combination, the path-dependent nature of money and how people's confidence can be affected by a price crash and confidence being lost by a custodian being compromised could cause a very long-term, could cause long-term damage to, to big confidence in Bitcoin. I will say, though, on the opposite side of that coin, Practices in the space related to security have improved so much, uh, and the technology around securing Bitcoin has improved so much since uh, 2013 and 14. I mean, Mark Capellas was a complete bumbling fool, and he was controlling hundreds of thousands of Bitcoins, and you know his key management was terrible, uh, embarrassingly bad. I think if you looked at places like Coinbase now, uh, their key management is probably very, very sophisticated. Uh, so I, I think this is a, a relatively small risk, but you have to account for it. You have to think about it. And if it did happen, you have to sort of recognize that it would be a huge blow to confidence in Bitcoin. Yeah, right. And so certainly it's important that uh, the, I think the self-custody culture is uh, staying strong so that people are helping uh, decentralize the system and avoid and sort of protect the system against that kind of risk. And also related is the rehypothecation one also. Let's say someday 
there's all these banks and everyone's just operating with these paper IOUs, is that an opportunity for capture of the system? Yeah, absolutely. And this is actually one of the the, um, the big failures that occurred in the 2008 financial crisis is that you had all these banks passing around these collateral assets and thinking that they were worth a certain amount. Uh, they were all rated AAA and at the moment when it became clear uh, that they weren't worth what they were said they were and they weren't really AAA uh, mortgage bonds, they were actually, you know, C or, or basically they would all default, Every the, the whole system froze up instantly uh, and you had a very steep drop in prices because liquidity dis- disappeared from the system. And you could imagine the same thing happening in Bitcoin where you have a bunch of these financial players rehypothecating and making loans and a bunch of the loans are bad and the loans are just circulating around in the system and then one of the players realizes that the loan is bad and that they can't collect it back and then that causes a freeze in the system and everyone says well we can't get the collateral back so we need to cover our losses how do we cover our losses we sell bitcoin we sell bitcoin the price goes down that makes losses bigger in other places and everyone starts selling at the same time and you have a liquidity crisis and Bitcoin just collapses in price. Now, one thing which makes that even scarier with Bitcoin is it's not a bond. It doesn't have cash flow. So there's no inherent, you know, utility flaw from cash flow. It could drop a gigantic amount if there's a liquidity crisis because of, uh, you know, excessive rehypothecation. The the one thing I think that helps a little bit in the Bitcoin space is it's closer to a free market. Um, the bigger problem that happened in the financial sector with the housing crisis was that you had these rating agencies that were created by the government, which had all of this power and which everyone trusted, saying certain uh, mortgages were AAA when they clearly were not AAA. Uh, I think there's less likelihood in the Bitcoin space of bad loans circulating that way and being treated really really well but that again is a risk and it's something that people who are investing in bitcoin should think about the financialization of bitcoin that's happening where players like blockfire are allowing you to collect interest and uh they're they're taking your bitcoin and give you interest but they're lending it to someone else that produces a risk in the system a systemic risk that could hurt the price of bitcoin if there's a liquidity crisis and the loans in the system are really bad so on rehypothecation, I think this is probably the point that the likes of Caitlin Long or someone like Trace Mayer might speak about that as well and talk about, okay, and that's why Trace Mayer used to do that whole proof of keys uh, campaign. And so I guess part of the idea there is that because more and more people were self-custodying, then they would try to stop that kind of risk. But I guess also the other point is that under those kinds of circumstances, if there are a lot of companies trading around with IOU tokens of Bitcoin, but not real Bitcoin, then, and if they were in the kinds of positions where they had, they were now short Bitcoin because they just realized they actually didn't hold the correct amount of Bitcoin because their IOUs were not true, then those people who are holding Bitcoin benefit because now they're running to try and cover their short or in some cases go bankrupt, right? So I guess that's kind of like, in in certain scenarios, it could actually be good for the, Hold if you hold your Bitcoin in your hardware wallet or in your multi-sig, that could be a benefit for you. Yeah, absolutely, and that's actually what happened with bank runs in the 19th century. If you were holding physical gold, you could benefit because there was a huge demand to get the physical gold, uh, because bank the the amount of paper out there was 
you know, way more than the gold that it represented. So people were desperately trying to get the physical gold to, to sort of match the paper claims that were floating around. So yeah, 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 that's a, that's a good point for sure. Yeah, but of course, depends on how the thing goes. And of course, it, it matters for the hodler that are you holding your own keys? Of course, as we say, not your keys, not your coins. Um, and so there's also, you mentioned the Gox supply. Um, is there a, are there potential overhang issues, right? Like if somehow, I mean, we don't know if Satoshi is dead or incapacitated or lost the private keys or the Gox situation with those coins. Are they just all going to hit the market at once and tank this thing? And as you mentioned earlier, the path dependence. What do you think there? Yeah, so the biggest theoretical overhang is the one you mentioned, which is Satoshi, who mined probably a million Bitcoins. But I think that one's very, very unlikely. Anyone who is able to hold Bitcoin to the point where they're worth tens of billions of dollars and those Bitcoins have never moved, I think we should safely assume that person is either dead or they destroyed the keys or or they have the, the greatest willpower in, in human history, which I think is very, <laughs> perhaps, you know, unlikely. So I, I don't think that supply overhang is really too much of a concern. But the Mount, the Mount Gox Trust overhang is an active supply overhang, which is going to be distributed in the next few years. And so the backstory is the dominant exchange in um, uh, 2000, like, maybe 2010 or 11 to 2013 was Mt. Gox, a Japan-based exchange run by a French guy called Marc Capellis. Uh, and, and he was incredibly incompetent. He'd never done anything like this before. He just slapped it together. To be fair, he, he bought the exchange from, um, I think it was Jed McCaleb. Jed McCaleb, I think. Yeah, yeah. Jed, Jed McCaleb. And, and, and he the, the exchange when Marc Capellis bought it was already insolvent. <laughs> Uh, it, it had more obligations than the Bitcoin it actually held. Uh, and, and Jed really didn't know what he was doing either. Um, so what happened is the exchange ultimately collapsed and people who had Bitcoins on there weren't able to access them anymore. And the whole thing went into receivership and Carpellis went to jail for a while. And so the Bitcoins that were left at the Mt. Gox exchange were held by a trust. And this trust is responsible for distributing the Bitcoins, um, and the whole thing was complicated by court cases against the trust and people claiming that they actually, uh, one of the, uh, there was a guy who had a deal with Mt. Gox, Peter Vesenes, who Vesenes, was, yeah. Vesenes, who was uh, saying, actually, I had a deal, you know, to an exchange partnership with them. So they, a lot of those Bitcoins were belong to me. And so they, they had to untangle all of this and it's like many, many years. Uh, and a lot of people actually gave up on their claims. They had claims to Bitcoins on Mt. Gox and they sold them to other people for pennies on the dollar because they thought, I'm never going to get anything out of this. So I'm going to, you know, take 10 cents on the dollar uh, and sell my claim to some company. And that company can hold out and see if they can get the full Bitcoin. Um, but it looks like the trust is finally going to be distributing the Bitcoins that it has. And I think the supply it has is somewhere in the order of 100 to 150,000 Bitcoins. Now, that is a very substantial supply overhang that if someone were to, you know, go to an order book at some exchange and do market sell with those Bitcoins, the price of Bitcoin would drop. 80%. Uh, of course, that's not how you would sell such a large block. You would go and look for large buyers and try and do an over-the-counter deal. But the question is, can the market absorb such a large supply shock? And of course, the answer is yes, it can. But at what price? What price can it absorb that? And it could be that the price that it absorbs that amount of Bitcoin is 
$5,000 per Bitcoin. Maybe, I don't, I'm not saying that's true, but it could be the case that, um, the supply and demand curves for that amount of supply overhang meet at that price level. Uh, because when you have a big supply overhang, it seems really scary, but any amount of supply can be absorbed if you reduce the price, right? Because then the, the purchasing power of that drops enough that there's someone out there who can say, yeah, I'll take the whole thing. Uh, at $5,000, Sailor might say, give me the whole lot. Give me 150,000 Bitcoins. My, co- my corporation can get a loan and, and buy the whole thing. Uh, but so the question is, where, what does the demand curve look like? We don't know. And that's scary. It's really scary to think about that. Um, and we'll find out over the next year, uh, how that, how that supply overhang affects the market price. The positive side might be that the people who are receiving those Bitcoins might be holders now. They might say, well, you know, I've seen what Bitcoins, I've had to wait all of these long years to get these Bitcoins, but I've actually seen what it does over time. So maybe now I'm incentivized to hold. Uh, the negative side of that is maybe they're like, we've waited this long, we want to cash out. Um, we bought we bought these claims for Bitcoin for 10 cents on the dollar. We're running some hedge fund and we want to show a profit to our clients. We're just going to flip this as soon as we get it. Uh, and this is an open question. I think it's definitely a scary question. And I think uh, uh, the bearish case would be the market can only absorb this overhang at a much lower price level for Bitcoin. Yeah, very interesting point. So you've got different dynamics there because there might be some users or holders who are like, yeah, I'm a diehard hodler. I'm why would I cash out? I'm holding Bitcoin is cashing out. You know, that they might be in that mindset. And then other people are more fiat denominated and they're thinking, no, I've got to show some fiat gain for my investors or whatever. But also, you know, the likes of MicroStrategy, they've got maybe 120,000 Bitcoins or something like that. So, you know, there might be big corporate buyers. But I think it all, like you said, it's a path dependency because the timing matters, right? So let's say you know, we're in a bit of a dip now, and then maybe next year the big euphoria happens and all these companies and corporations are buying it up, buying it up, buying it up, and then the coins come released, well, it'll get bought up by all these companies. But if, let's say, the coins, the Mount Gox overhang, supply overhang coins come out before that, then maybe we get another, you know, 2014, 15, 16 bear market. Well, I think, you know, I think a good case can be made... Um, that the Mt. Gox Trust may have triggered the 2017 bear market, the end of, or the end of the bull market. I think some people have argued because the, the thing is, the trust has it had both Bitcoin obligations. People had Bitcoins uh, deposited at Mt. Gox, but they also had dollars deposited at Mt. Gox, and so Gox had to uh, create enough dollars that they could match all of the dollar claims that they needed to make. Uh, and and I think it's been argued pretty convincingly that they sold pretty heavily into the 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 mania of the the parabolic phase of of the end of the bull market, uh, and they potentially could do that. That's the perfect time if you want to unload supply. Is the mania phase of any bull market because you have this massive demand and you can just dump into it without moving the price too much. You don't want to do the dumping in a bear market because there's so little liquidity. You can't squeeze this massive amount of supply through this small, tiny window of demand. But when the window of demand is huge, you can squeeze a huge amount of supply. Um, so you mentioned MicroStrategy. Just want to comment on that. The average price of those 120,000 Bitcoins that they purchased is, I think, about $30,000. 
Yeah. Michael Michael Sales kept updated. So you could you could even use that as kind of a yardstick and say, well, the Gox supply overhang is about the same size, and and MicroStrategy accumulated that much at twenty nine thousand or thirty thousand. So maybe that's the clearing price, uh, which would be a big drop, right? That would be kind of uh, make a lot of people feel it would be stomach churning and make them feel sick. But that's a possibility, and we have to acknowledge it. Yeah, I mean the way I think about it is, I guess. I'm I'm I I was a I was a new coiner in 2013. So I've lived through multiple 80% drawdowns. So I sort of live on that idea that hey, there could be an 80% drawdown. So if we're 50k now, it it could go to 10k. I mean, I don't know. Like <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'm overly um but I guess that's maybe that's like the PTSD of uh prior cycles coming to us there. But I am also curious as well because I think we are going to see a lot more people coming in institutionally as well. So, for example, they want exposure in other ways. They are buying the likes of the publicly listed Bitcoin miners, right? Hot 8, Riot, Marathon, and so on. Uh, they are looking, and potentially now there's a new Bitcoin bond, right? El Salvador, there might be all these people who are currently stuck paying, uh, stuck in a negative yielding bond, and they might think, well, hey, I want a 6.5% coupon. I would like a Bitcoin dividend with the Bitcoin bond. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I think the Bitcoin bond is interesting. I think Nick Carter had a good comment on the, the Bitcoin bond that you can get the same exposure synthetically just by buying El Salvador's bonds directly. They're non-Bitcoin bonds plus buying Bitcoin. And so it's kind of, it's a little bit of a gimmick. <laughs> the, the the Bitcoin bond is a little bit of a gimmick. Um but yeah, I think, you know, the macro environment that we live in where government bonds have negative yield is certainly a big uh, driver for people to to own something like Bitcoin. Bitcoin, um, and this actually is a good segue to the next big risk that I think we should talk about. Bitcoin and most monetary goods like gold and Bitcoin uh, that don't produce a yield do best in negative interest rate environments when the the real yield is negative, which means that you are losing value by holding fiat money. You're literally losing purchasing power, either directly in nominal terms where you give a loan uh, to the government and you give them $100 and after three years, they give you $90 back, which is absolutely crazy. I mean, that when, when you have, you know, negative interest rates that, um, that are that high in magnitude, people start hiding money under the mattress because it's better to hold cash. Um, but so negative interest rates are, are, are great for Bitcoin and we we kind of live in a, in a period of negative interest rates. But I think a big risk that we need to consider for Bitcoin and another bearish case for Bitcoin is Bitcoin is now a macro asset. It has reached macro scale. It's a trillion dollar asset. And I think it's vulnerable to Federal Reserve policy changes. If the Federal Reserve t- meaningfully tightens monetary policy, I think, and I think this is actually already happening, uh, I think that could have a big impact on the price. Some people are saying right now, well, there's all this inflation around. Why did Bitcoin drop? And, and my answer to that is that markets aren't present looking, they're future looking. They're trying to anticipate what's happening in the future. And I think markets are actually starting to price in the possibility that the Fed is going to tighten monetary policy. Uh, and, and if the Fed did tighten monetary policy, it would have the same effect that it did on gold in, in the early 80s. During the 70s, there was a long period of inflation, a decade of inflation. 
And then Paul Volcker came around and said, we have to end this. We, this is going to result in a crisis of confidence in the dollar. And, and he um, raised interest rates to an unprecedented level of 20% short-term interest rates. So you put your money in the bank, you get 20% back. Uh, and and this is when monetary goods like gold and Bitcoin would do poorly because if there's a real yield, an actual you know, yield where you're getting more purchasing power of time just by holding money in the bank, you're going to take it out of something like gold, which doesn't have any yield. It doesn't produce cash flow and you're going to go put it in the bank. This is what sucked all of the power out of gold and ended the bull market in gold uh, in the early 80s. The Federal Reserve has that theoretical power. And because Bitcoin is a macro asset now, if the Fed came out and said, we're putting interest rates to 5% now, I think it would be a devastating blow to Bitcoin. Now, on the positive side of that, I think the U.S. Federal Reserve is has painted themselves into a corner. They're in a much, much more difficult position today than they were in 1980 when Paul Volcker did this. In 1980, the U.S. debt position was only 40% of GDP. Today, the U.S. debt position and the debt position of countries across the world is over 100% of GDP. If the Federal Reserve were to meaningfully increase interest rates they could make the U.S. debt unserviceable. That means the U.S. government couldn't pay its debt. And if you look at the U.S. budget, and you look at the fraction of the budget that goes to the military and to Social Security and interest payments, the interest payments is a big chunk. It's a really big chunk. And if interest rates, you know, doubled or tripled, that chunk gets really, really big. Uh, And so the U.S. is trying to service its debt, and then it wouldn't be able to service its debt because... If the Federal Reserve had increased interest rates, that is the the one thing I think saves us and and really makes it unlikely the Federal Reserve is going to uh, raise interest rates a lot. But in the case that Bitcoin was starting to monetize very rapidly and they got afraid, there is that possibility. So that is another major bearish case for Bitcoin is the Federal Reserve has the power to attack the price level of Bitcoin by raising interest rates. Yeah, so it's essentially it's true to say that a lot of the like stock market run up and things like that a lot of that has actually been driven by very easy monetary policy right like people have done those charts showing like m2 money supply growth and like stock market going up and things and so that's been also one of the arguments of like oh see bitcoin is becoming just another macro asset therefore you know why bother with it and so on although of course i think you could still argue that bitcoin's returns are still just so much greater uh and so i guess that's also one other aspect and obviously it's it's its own system it's you're create we're creating this whole parallel alternative system that you can use so that's probably one way to summarize some of that and but i I, look at the end of the day i think the chances that they're going to stop that they're going to stop printing i think that's extremely (laughs) extremely low right i might be a little you know yeah i i think we should be um somewhat cautious about the next six months. I think there is such a strong public sentiment now around inflation that there's political pressure on the Federal Reserve. The first thing that they're going to do is not actually tighten. They're going to jawbone. This is how the Federal Reserve often does things. They're trying to bring the market back and sort of control inflation by saying, we will tighten. You watch us. We'll tighten. We'll really come for you with these higher interest rates. And sometimes that works because perceptions in markets can have a big impact. Uh, And if people think, oh, that's going to happen, that changes the bond market, changes prices, and that has flow and effects into the economy. 
Uh, but, I, you know, I, I am not entirely sure. I think there is a decent chance that the Federal Reserve does a token interest rate hike in the next six months. If they do, even a token interest rate hike, I think, will have a big impact on a number of macro assets, not just Bitcoin. It will, I think, have a big impact on the stock market, a massive impact on gold. And I think Bitcoin will be caught up in this uh, in, in, in a sort of way that Bitcoin was caught up in the macro environment when the COVID pandemic happened. There was just a general worldwide liquidity crisis uh, and everything collapsed. Uh, I think if the Federal Reserve tightens, and I think there's a decent chance they do, it's possible that we'll have you know a similar effect. I do think, though, that the Federal Reserve will have to unwind whatever it does, because I think what they'll do is they've spent the last decade inflating the biggest bubble that we've ever seen to try and get out of the last bubble. If they, you know, if they get a pin and prick the bubble and it, it's not going to explode in an orderly fashion, it's just going to explode all at once and it's going to be really messy. And I think what they'll do is they'll panic and sort of rewind their course and go back to massive monetary printing to try and keep the bubble from fully collapsing. So I think long term, this is going to be bullish for Bitcoin. But I think short term, you should be very wary of major movements in Bitcoin's price because of the Federal Reserve. Right. So they could try something in the short term, then see it tanks the markets, and then all of a sudden say, oh, no, 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 guys, it's all right. Come back. We'll lower the rates again. Please come back. <laughs> Like they, you could imagine that kind of scenario, um, and I guess that's the other one as well. Uh, the idea, and people talk about this often, this idea of the concerted state attack. Now, you could arguably say China banning mining was, in some sense, an attack on the network, and Bitcoin came through with flying colors, right? So, as I recall, I think it was June or July, uh, China banned mining, and then as of probably a few days ago, so as we speak, it's fifteenth of December, twenty twenty one. Bitcoin mining hash rate came back up to around 180 exahash and basically is now back at all-time highs, so or close to. So what's your thought there on the risks around a concerted state attack? How, how much of a risk do you think it is? This, I think, is the most important risk to consider for the long term. I mean, the other risks, some of them are kind of short-term that we've been talking about. But state attack, I think, is a real risk and everyone should uh, take it seriously. I think the idea that Bitcoin is inevitable is a little bit naive. Uh, states are incredibly violent and powerful. And if anything has been proven over the last, uh, you know, two years is that the state can get the, the masses of people to do absolutely crazy things that we would never have expected in Western uh, sort of liberal societies, and I mean liberal in the classical sense, you know, valuing freedom. I don't think we've seen a concerted state attack. I think we've seen indirect attacks. I think that the Chinese mining ban isn't what I would consider a concerted global attack on Bitcoin. I think if Bitcoin really were beginning to monetize very quickly, if it, say, got to the capitalization of gold and was looking like it was going to double that would be very, very scary for nation states. That would be at the point where they're starting to say, we might lose control of monetary policy because of this. I think that's when you'd see a concerted state attack, which could include a number of things like banning exchanges, banning the ability to buy Bitcoin, banning the even the ability to own Bitcoin or transact Bitcoin, perhaps trying to attack the mining facilities. That's, that's a vulnerability of Bitcoin is that mining is physically concentrated in a location or multiple locations. Those are centers for attack. Those are places you can go to. I mean, the network itself is kind of 
this um, digital uh, ethereal thing that you can't touch or poke. But the miners are physical. And that those are the places where governments could go and say, we're, we're confiscating all of this. You're all going to jail. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I think whether or not that happens really depends on whether Bitcoin gets enough political capture. We need Bitcoin to get, uh, we need to have enough people in inside the state who have a strong incentive to defend Bitcoin. Uh, and I, we're not there yet. I don't think we're even close. We have positive signs that that's happening and we're getting a, a growing base of politicians who are pro-Bitcoin, at least in the Western countries and especially in America. But we're not at the point where we can say confidently, oh yeah, we have this huge majority in the US Congress. There's no way they would ever be able to ban Bitcoin. I think the entrenched interests, the banking interests still have far more power than the Bitcoin interests. Uh, so it's a race. I think we what we're we're seeing is a race to get enough political capture that it becomes infeasible, politically infeasible to shut Bitcoin down. Uh, and I'm cautiously optimistic about that personally, but I, I don't sort of have a sense of inevitability. I think the real battle will come when Bitcoin surpasses gold in market capitalization uh, on an upswing. That is the moment when I think central bankers around the world and the the establishment and the elite will get together in a serious way and say, what do we do to stop this? That's when the test, the real test for Bitcoin comes. Can it survive a concerted state attack? It's an open question. Uh, I'm I'm hopeful, uh, cautiously optimistic. We need Bitcoin. We need it's our it's our one true hope for human liberty. But there are so many times in history when uh, human liberty has been stamped out by by governments that we, we, we just can't rule that possi- possibility out. Right. And as you rightly say, I mean, the craziness of the last few years, you would have thought, I mean, there were many times where someone would have said, oh, they won't mandate this or require that. There'd be riots in the streets. And maybe there have been some protests, but maybe not at the quite the level that we thought, like the, maybe the population has become docile in certain ways and so it is important as you say to build support and that can apply at multiple levels right that could be at the individual level of having lots of people who represent maybe their vote or their money their like what aspects they might be doing then the like if you are winning politicians over into like as in sitting politicians into the bitcoin interest as it were then I think those are all things that as you grow that base, then the risk of this concerted state attack diminishes. Yeah, yep. I, I think there's another risk as well. This is a, a lesser risk, but I think it's worth mentioning is people losing confidence in Bitcoin because they've put so much faith in a model of, of what Bitcoin should do price-wise. Uh, and this is not a criticism of Plan B in particular, but there's a lot of people who've been sort of following um, stock to flow model and really sort of taking it as a crystal ball for the future. Um, I've always been skeptical of models in general. Uh, it, I think it's historically it's been very interesting that it's followed that model pretty well and it's worthy of comment and trying to understand why that's the case. But I've always been skeptical of putting too much faith. I've always thought the best bullish case for Bitcoin is to look at at its comparative advantages as money and to see that those comparative advantages will bring uh, people to Bitcoin at the margin. How fast that happens, I don't know. Um, but I, I, I worry a little bit that 
you know, recently it looks like Bitcoin's price might not be following the model exactly, the stock to flow model. Uh, and that people, because of that, are just going to give up and say, well, this is the end of the game. I'm out of here. I'm not interested in Bitcoin anymore because the model's broken and now I can't expect to have huge gains in the future. I think that's really a, a bad way to look at it because for me, I don't know what Bitcoin's going to do in the short term. And, and sometimes I feel like I'm bearish on the price, although this never causes me to sell. I'm bearish on the price in the short term. But in the long term, I'm extremely bullish on Bitcoin. I think there's a at least a 50% chance it becomes the reserve currency of the world. If it becomes the reserve currency of the world, it's at least 100x. And if anyone gave you those odds at a casino, like there's a 50-50 shot to make 100 times your money, you would always, always, always take that bet. And so you should, I think, hold Bitcoin because it, it is the best risk reward trade-off that, that you could imagine. Um, so I, I remain very, very bullish on Bitcoin because of that. But I worry that people around me and people who have just come to the community have come to it because they think it's easy to predict the price and, oh, wow, I can look at this model and it tells me I'm going to make three or four X my money in three months and oh i didn't so i'm out of here that that's what i really i I'm, i have a lot of concern about that i see yeah and some of that is just human nature people are chasing like i think people are just naturally momentum chasing so they just see it going up and they're like oh i want more of that and they see it going down oh too bearish no i don't want that now so it's kind of it takes time to actually build and come to that long-term bullish perspective of like you know what even if the price is going down i'm still bullish long term and that's that's hard. And I think that's also part of the educational journey that obviously you're trying to help. I'm trying to help with that. A bunch of us are all trying to put this material out there to, I guess, give lessons from the past and as well as our theory about what we believe is happening in the future. So um, probably a good spot to wrap up here, VJ. But if you've got any tips for people out there on how to you know, weather the cycles and steal themselves, and of course, where can they get the book? Yeah, so I think the best way to weather the cycles is to say, I want to have some of my savings in Bitcoin, uh, but I'm going to view it as a you know a long-term investment. I'm I'm willing to hold my Bitcoin for four years to ten years, and I think if you're willing to do that, I think you're going to do great. I think even now at the current price level, you'll do really really well. Um, people in general with technology uh, tend to overestimate how important the technology is in the short term but they really underestimate how important it is in the long term and you see that with the internet we had the crazy bubble in 2000 and it crashed and people thought oh this is the most important thing ever and it didn't happen it didn't seem to be that important so they there was this huge despair and they're like oh this okay maybe the internet isn't really big at all maybe krugman was right and it's no more important than the fax machine but in the long term, it's way more important than anyone imagined. It's transformed everything. It's gotten into every single sector. I think the same thing is going to be true of Bitcoin. There's going to be too much hype in the short term, and then people are going to be disappointed and be like, oh, this isn't that useful. But give it the time scale of a decade, and I think it's going to be one of the most important things that has ever been created on the level of the internet. Uh, so you know that, that that's how I would weather the storm. Think long term. Take some of your savings that you're willing to, you know, you can handle the volatility of the 50 or even 80% swings and just put it away to the side. And I think you'll be very happy in 10 years, just as you would if you bought Apple or Google and held it for 10 years. Re regarding my book, you can get it on Amazon. 
Uh, you can get it on other retailers, like at other retailers like Barnes and Noble. But most people are probably going to get it from somewhere like Amazon. Fantastic, BJ. It was a pleasure chatting with you again, and I'm looking forward to catching up with you in person sometime soon. I can't wait. It's going to be awesome. I hope you enjoy the show. Make sure you share it with your family and friends so they can learn about Bitcoin. And you can find me at stefanlibera.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the Citadels.